Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits to strengthen Maine's economy by focusing on education, leadership, and quality of place. On the web at maincf.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations, a new show here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is the Maine Fisherman's Forum 40th Anniversary Retrospective. Our guests in the studio today are Robin Alden from the Penobscot East Resource Center. Hi, Robin. Thanks for coming. Hi, Natalie. It's great to be here. And we are also joined by Jim Wilson from the School for Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Natalie. So Robin and Jim are both founders of the Maine Fisherman's Forum, and we're really excited to have them here today. The forum has been running since 1975. I will say that I was 1976. We're debating here. 75. 75, all right. I was about five or six at the time, so um, this is an exciting day for me to learn about this history when I was a wee little lass. Um, But before we jump into conversations with uh, Robin and Jim, we just wanted to let you know that this past forum, which happened just a few weeks ago in Rockland at the Samoset Resort, um, my colleagues and I from Maine Sea Grant interviewed, uh, I think it was about 28 people, about their experience with the forum over the last 40 years. And over the course of the hour, we're going to share some of those clips with you because they really illustrate the breadth of what the forum has come to mean for people in Maine's coastal communities. Um, So before we jump into the details, Robin, tell us a little bit about what you do. What is Penobscot East Resource Center and what are you guys up to? Uh, Penobscot East Resource Center is a nonprofit uh, located in Stonington. And our mission is to secure a future for fisheries and fishing communities in eastern Maine and beyond. So everything we do is based on the idea that um, is trying to support what's called co-management, which is the involvement of fishermen in science and policy and the involvement of scientists and um, policymakers uh, sort of increasing their capacity to work with fishermen so that we can all uh, fish forever. Great. Thanks, Robin. And Jim, tell us a little bit about your work at the University of Maine. What's been your area of interest related to fisheries all these years? Well, I'm supposedly an economist. I used to be in the <laughs> economics department. Uh, but 
you know, fish and fishermen are a lot more interesting than the usual economic stuff. Got into that. Uh, and eventually, the university put together a School of Marine Sciences about 20 years ago now, 17 years ago. And that's where I work. Uh, we have very nice, about 250 undergraduate students, 75 graduate students. And we have this nice program very close to what uh, Robin's organization is aimed at, and that is how you look at the way humans and fish interact. It's called a dual degree program. It's marine biology and marine policy. Great. I know I've met a lot of people that have come both through your program and have had connections with Penobscot East over the years, and I'm always really impressed with the caliber of what they're up to. Um, so, Jim, you and Robin were instrumental in founding the Maine Fisherman's Forum, which just celebrated its 40th anniversary. Um, 40 years is a long time, and the uh, sort of what was happening in the fishing industry in the mid-1970s was pretty different than what is happening today. So let's just paint a picture for our listeners. Uh, the mid-70s, we still had a pretty active codfish industry. We had... Um, I think you, you mentioned to me before we met the Portland Fish Exchange wasn't open yet. We were just about to claim fishing rights out to 200 miles. Things were different then. But tell us a little bit about what was going on and what your experience was at the time that got you thinking that some sort of a gathering among the industry would be useful. Well, at that time, there was, except for the lobster fishery, almost no active regulation of the fisheries, especially cod and fin fisheries and so on. Uh, I'd spent a couple of years going up and down the coast, coast talking with fishermen, uh, really liked the lifestyle, the way people went out the world. And then I, I made the mistake, or they had the good fortune, however you want to look at it, of going to Washington as the preparations were being made for the 200-mile limit. And it was very clear to me that things were going to change dramatically uh, and that Maine had to get ready, had to start a dialogue, uh, understand what our interests were, how we would respond to this new regulation on the fishery. Can you explain what the 200-mile limit refers to? Until 1977, the U.S. government only managed fisheries out to three miles. Right? And we extended, had no economic or other claims beyond that, well, some to 12, but mostly close inshore. Right? And in 1977, we did something called extended jurisdiction, uh, and that is we extended our jurisdiction over fisheries uh, and other resources out to 200 miles. Most other countries in the world did it right about the same time. Canada did, most of the European countries, the Asian countries, uh, South American, you know, so there, all of a sudden there was this great rush to enclose the ocean. Right. And Robin, what were you up to at the time? Well, I, l let me just say one more thing about the fishery, which is that um, during the years uh, running up to 1977, we had huge foreign fleets in the Gulf of Maine. And you can't imagine how much that had changed fishing um, for coastal Maine fishermen because we had huge stern trawlers side by side running up and down the Gulf of Maine and 
<clears throat> fish disappeared and um there and they a, were coming up pretty close to they shore. They were very close yep. to shore. So so um there was a huge push in the industry for the 200 mile limit in order to exclude the foreigners. What people didn't realize is that with that would come federal management. And that changed everything. That changed yeah. everything. I think it's really tricky for us to imagine the, all those ships coming in so close to shore today. Just the scale of change is sort of dr- dramatic. People said it looked like New York City out there. Wow. It did. Yeah. <laughs> so what I, what I was doing was I had started Maine Commercial Fisheries, which now is Commercial Fisheries News, um, in 1973, and I was running that. And, and, that, and that is a newspaper dedicated to the fishing industry of the It started out for Maine, and now it's a regional uh, newspaper. And so I was doing that, but I had done it. uh, I had had the idea and started the paper when I was taking a year off from college. So I needed to go back to college and met Jim, and uh, he invited me to work on a research project that was funded by Sea Grant um, that was going to start to think through how Maine could prepare for the 200-mile limit. So I took that opportunity and... um, the forum is one of the things that came out of that project. That's great. Um, let's we'll come back to Jim in a minute to sort of look at the the history of the creation of the forum. But let's jump towards some of our audio clips, um, if we can, um, to hear a little bit from members, or I should say, from attendees of this year's forum. We'll hear from five or six different people, um, sort of their reflections on the history of the forum and and their family connections to it. Proctor Wells, a fourth-generation fisherman from Bath. How long have you been coming to the Maine Fisherman's Forum? Um, since it started, uh, 1975. I used to attend with my grandfather and uh, attended a good number of years with him. And then, like I said, and then my my mother is also active. She's She still comes. I've, I've been here and brought my family, been involved with it for a good number of years. David Johnson, fisherman from Casco Bay, on changes in the fishing industry over the last 40 years. What was the first forum like? Very rowdy. <laughs> there was, the mix has changed. There was a lot of ground fishermen and lobstermen, and probably 50-50 in the beginning. And it could be very rowdy at times. So, and then, uh, and of course, a lot of us were ground fishermen back then also. And it's more evolved into basically just lobstermen now. I'm a handful of mix, but majority of them are lobstermen. So, so. What are you fishing for now? Lobsters, just lobsters. Yeah. We used to family. do everything. So. But lobster has evolved, so you can make a decent year lobster. And back in 40 years ago, it was rare for a lobsterman to be able to make a year's pay just lobster. So you had to do other things back 40 years ago. Now it's not a necessity to do that. Bob Baer from the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine on changes in the lobster industry over the past 40 years. Well, the the, uh, the catch, I mean, the huge increases in the catch over the years that the forum has existed. At the same time, uh, the tidal pounds that used to be a very important part of, of the uh, industry, many of them are gone. It, it just hasn't worked out well. There have been a variety of issues that... Uh, have uh, not been so good for the lobster pounds. Deirdre Gilbert, Director of Marine Policy at the Department of Marine Resources, on the role of the Maine Fishermen's Forum in fisheries management today and in the past. We think all year long about what topics um, would be 
the best to kind of roll out at the forum, um, what opportunity this presents to kind of get a dialogue going on something that we have been working on. Uh, in recent years, I can think about the fact that, you know, the commissioner went out, we did 16 meetings on lobster in one month two years ago, and we did that in January, so it was a logical thing to kind of then bring to the forum and as a kind of a synopsis or summary of what we heard there and try to keep that conversation going. Um, I think that there's just a lot of things that are like that, that we think, oh, the forum would be the perfect place to kind of bring people up to speed on that. And finally, Jessica Hathaway, the editor-in-chief of National Fisherman, which is a national publication that started as the Maine Coast Fisherman in the 1920s, on the long life of the Maine Fisherman's Forum. Well, I just have to say that, it, you know, it seems like the little engine that could. You know, it's this, we're in this tiny, small town in Maine. You know, it's a terrible time of year weather-wise. But every year, this, this show brings so many fishermen and, and different aspects of the industry together. And it just, it's a really, in the middle of winter, it's a really warm, nice place to be. And so we just, we love the forum. We love coming every year. And and I hope it goes for another 40. So um, that was a, a lot of voices about the history of the Fisherman Forum. And I will say that it was incredibly difficult for those of us who did the recording to figure out what to include because there was so many great commentary about the history of the fisheries. And that was just a blip of it. But Jim... Um, I was particularly struck with what David Johnson said. He was the fisherman from Casco Bay who talked about how back then um, fishermen were engaged in a variety of different fisheries, including him and his family. Um, but now they're, for the most part, engaged um, mostly in, in lobster. Can you reflect a little bit on the changes over the years? Well, I mean, the lobster industry is a really interesting place. It's unique in the world in the way it's been basically managed from the bottom up. Uh, rules that fishermen have devised, the state has worked with them, revised them. It's been, you know, a great success story. The contrast is ground fishery, which has not been. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is great success in the lobster fishery, partly due to the fact that we haven't been able to put our act together on the ground fishery. All right. And this has meant that guys have really had to adjust, as Davey said. Uh, people used to fish multiple fisheries. They had a seasonal round. They do ground fish this time of year, then switch to uh, lobster, then to herring, scallops, whatever was available. Now it's lobster. And that's a reflection of the fact that we haven't done very well with these regulations. Robin, do you have anything to add related to those kinds of changes? I know that you guys are, are working hard to, to, to try to enable a diverse and robust fishing industry. What have you observed? Well, I think uh, this is such a major change um, in basically the stability of the coastal fishery. Right now, it looks good because we are we have unprecedented volumes of lobster, and so people are making probably a better living than they've ever made, even when they were doing a round of other fisheries. But it's just one fishery, and when you're a lobsterman, you're an owner operator, and you fish in your own area. You don't roam the coast. So some of the other fisheries, you can chase the fish wherever they are. Um, 
for a lobsterman to have opportunity, you've got to have those other resources near home. And we don't have that anymore. So um, I guess that's the challenge right now is to rebuild the, the system so that there are more options so that when and if things change in, in the ecosystem, they always change no matter what. Um, there are st- There's still an income for and a livelihood for people who are fishing out of these many, many coastal towns. Yeah, what is that that expression in in the marine environment? The only constant is change, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, so going back to the work that you guys were doing, um, uh, what what was some of the initial thinking about starting something like the Maine Fishermen's Forum? What were some of the early visions? What were you trying to achieve? Can I talk about the VFW theory? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear that. VFW, so, Volunteer Fire Department, right? No. Veterans. Wait, no, that's the wrong letters. Veterans Ford Wars. Great. Yeah. Okay, okay, go for it. <laughs> and, you know, what we were trying to do, what we thought had to happen was a place where people could get, get together, have a public discussion, and kind of approach these problems that we saw coming down the road. And those are kind of classic situations where everybody's got the incentive to sit back and let somebody else do it, be a free rider. And we kind of asked ourselves about what kinds of organizations do this and how do they do it. And we landed on the VFW, mainly because there was a VFW hall just down the street from our house, my house. And uh, our theory about the VFW was that every veteran can sit back and watch the VFW lobby for veterans' benefits. Every fisherman could sit back and let somebody else do it. But people join the VFW. Why do they do that? Our answer, bluntly, was booze. And community and family and friends. You put together a hall where people can go on a Friday night. And if you're going to get the value of the VFW, you want to be a member. Go be part of the group. Have Go to the dances. Go to the family dinners. Sit around the bar and drink with your buddies. Do social things. And... That was kind of the idea about what we had to do with the forum was to create a social event as much as a business event. So I think that this is really significant because one of the things that happened with federal management was that um, we started down a path where management was going to be scientific. And we were going to know the answers probably from Washington or from the regional office, and then we were going to implement them if we had the political will. What the VFW theory or the Maine Fishermen's Forum theory says is that fisheries management is a people business, and that, in fact, there's knowledge in all those sectors. Fishermen have knowledge that scientists don't have. Scientists have knowledge that fishermen don't have. Managers need both types of, of, of um, knowledge. And in order to move policy, you have to move people. And that involves trust, exchange, all those things. That's great. And uh, just for the benefit of listeners, um, or just first a quick reminder, you're listening to Community Radio on WERU-FM, and our topic on today's Coastal Conversations is 
a retrospective uh, on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the Maine Fishermen's Forum. And for folks who haven't attended the Maine Fishermen's Forum, let me just paint a little picture about what happens. Um, it's a roughly a three-day event. Um, it usually starts on a Thursday, and the Thursday is dedicated to a particular topic or issue. Often it's clam day on Thursday, so the whole day is dedicated to clams. And then for the next two days, um, there's all kinds of seminars and events on all things related to the fishing industry. The topics are different each year depending on what's happening, what's hot, uh, what's emerging that particular year. Um, so there's seminars, but then there's also other this all this other stuff that's going on that Robin and Jim have alluded to. Uh, it's There's activities for children. There's movie nights for kids. There's a pool at the Samoset where the kids hang out. There's also safety and uh, other kinds of gear demonstrations by the Coast Guard in the pool. There's a trade show where tons and tons of different vendors come and interact. It's more about interacting with their um, their customers. And um, what else am I missing? There's an auction. There's dinner, dance. Two dinners. Yeah. A reception yep. with donated seafood from all over the state of Maine, both uh, individual boats and many, many shoreside processors and, and uh, dealers uh, contribute food. And an auction? Tell us about the There's auction. An auction. One of the, probably the biggest thing you haven't mentioned is the board. Uh-huh. Who puts yeah, you're an right. incredible amount of effort into finding the right seminars, soliciting support from commercial establishments, uh, getting the right people to come to the seminars, bringing experts, bringing fishermen from other fisheries. Uh, there's just an immense amount of effort that goes into organizing this. And the board itself comes from all sorts of different aspects of the fishery. All right. Fishing industry itself, scientists, academics, government people, uh, state people. Uh, the board has this broad representation, and they really work hard all fall and winter, to put together this forum every year. It's amazing the amount of work that goes into it. And Shaloa, who young, who runs it, is just, you know, amazing the way she coordinates this whole thing and keeps it on track every year. That's the major thing you forgot, I think. Yeah, yeah, and that's a significant thing. And the, the, the auction and other events are fundraisers to enable future members of the fishing industry? Oh. How, how so, does that? so it both funds the forum, mm -hmm. uh, meaning funds the small amount that's paid for Shiloh and, and the cost of the forum, uh, but also a big scholarship fund. Which uh, is really great. Yeah. And it, the forum started connected to the University of Maine, correct? And then it transitioned to Commercial Fisheries News with you, Robin, and, but now it's run by a board. Tell us a little bit about the transition. <clears throat> so what happened was... Uh, uh, Jim and I started as, as a project of Sea Grant, and the year after that, um, I joined the Marine Advisory Service, uh, you call it the Marine Extension Team now, um, and ran the forum as part of my job. So Sea Grant continued the, so I was doing the role that both the board does now which, of planning seminars and also the role that Shaloa does of planning the event. Um, and then that continued for two or three years, and then when I returned to to be editor of uh, Commercial Fisheries News, it came back with the 
it stuck with me and went back to commercial fishery, went to commercial fisheries news. So um, commercial fisheries news ran it um, for several years. And I want to give a shout out to the other people who did that. Um, so Felicity Myers and then JB uh, Kozlowskis uh, ran, uh, ran it while um, we were, while it was under commercial fisheries news. Then we as an organization, commercial fisheries news decided that it really needed to be run by the, industry. And so we made a transition to this very broad-based by bylaw um, uh, board, which has been running it ever since. And Belinda Dolliber from Swans Island did the role of running the the logistics of everything uh, for a number of years. And then we found Shaloa and she's been doing it ever since. So that's the, that's the evolution. And um, I think the fact that the industry runs it and that they found somebody as talented as Shaloa is really the reason why it's survived. And and I know, Jim, that, that you have also mentioned to me that you think that sort of divesting it from the university was also really critical to its survival. So as a university guy, tell me what you mean there. What I mean is if you let us run things, we'll have a seminar going all the time, uh-huh. and nobody will show up, all right? And we don't have the ability to keep our finger on all the different aspects of the industry, and this move away from the university over to a industry board means that the forum can keep its fingers on everything that's important. Right? And from a university point of view, just looking at how the university and big organizations behave, what was kind of remarkable about Ron Dearborn's decision was to give it away. Organizations don't give things away like the forum. Uh-huh. But Dearborn made the decision to do that. It was a really smart decision, I think. Great, great. Um, so you guys have both talked about the importance of um, making the forum just a good, fun event and how that was critical to its growth. So let's hear from some of the other people that we interviewed at this year's event a few weeks ago at the Samoset Resort um, about sort of their community relationship with the forum. Ted Hoskins longtime minister on Ilaho and self-described advocate for fishermen. Well, first and foremost, it's the people you see. You miss catching up with everybody, and this is a wonderful opportunity to catch up and say hi and touch base again. But also, there's always something new to learn, uh, some uh, issue and, and concern that gets lifted up and explored, and uh, it, it's positive, and it's really good to have that happen to you. Jeannie Day, co-coordinator of the Maine Fishermen's Forum for 33 years. Um, Coming to the forum has always been a great experience. You meet so many wonderful people. The fishermen and their families, we've watched them grow and turn into fishermen of their own. Could tell you some really good stories, but I won't. (laughs) Because we don't want to let it all out. Well, you can tell us some of the calmer stories. Oh, the calmer stories. Uh, The auction has been a wonderful, wonderful um, event. Um, We've seen um, suspenders go up for auction for $100 a a whack. Um, We've seen jeans come off people. And um, every year, as people walk through the door you see continuous changes in them. They remain the same personally, but they've aged a little more. The kids have grown up. 
the families have expanded, but they're here for a reason. They're here for a wonderful weekend, and they're here to learn more about the industry and how they can preserve it. Connie Russell, the general manager of the Samoset Resort in Rockland, on how the Fisherman's Forum has become a central part of even the Samoset community. It's an exciting event for us to put on and execute. We have about 175 employees that look forward to it every year. It sort of means that spring is just around the corner and we love to see familiar faces. We've hosted it for 39 of the 40 years. The first year was apparently in Stonington. Um, So we really look forward to welcoming back all of our repeat customers and seeing familiar faces. And it's, it's a big boon to the economy. Um, not just for the Samoset, just for the whole greater Midcoast area because all of the fishermen and their families come and stay here, but they also eat and dine off property or go shopping. So it's a real uh, important economic value to the area as well. And you and all of your staff really make fishing families and people who are here feel welcome. How do you do that? Uh there's a secret. It's pretty simple. <laughs> a lot of our employees are from fishing families, so it's, uh, it's easy for us to do that. Most of the people here are Mainers uh, that attend this, and it's, it's a Mainer taking care of a Mainer. George LaPointe, a former commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources. When I was commissioner, people would say, you know, it's a terrible job and it's, it's always busy. But that was the good part of it. You know, you think about the forum and, and the people you see um, and the issues that are addressed. And so it's this cool community getting together and people really care about each other. And so you work hard and you disagree hard sometimes, but you also play hard. Uh, and so that, for, for me, has always made the forum a great event. Brian Robbins, a former fisherman and now journalist with Commercial Fisheries News, on meeting people at the forum who once helped him as a young fisherman himself. In the late 70s, 1980s, I fished offshore lobster with my brother Stevie. And back in the 70s, that's when the O'Hara boats were the big deal, the Dragger Fleet out of Portland. And we knew Dick Jellison, Elliot Wharton, uh, Neil Farrell, we knew those guys like they were like uncles to us. They kind of, we were off there in a 44 Stanley getting the tar beat out of us, and those guys kind of looked out for us, you know. They were always out. But we knew them as voices on the radio, some of them we never saw face-to-face. So years later, I'm here for Commercial Fisheries News, 1988 on, and a bunch of people talking to you, folks you hadn't seen for a while, you know. There's this fella, older fella, came over and said, Brian Robbins. Says, yeah, Dick Jellison. Well, he was Dick Jellison, you know, skipper in those dragons for years. A voice that was like in the gale of wind. You thought you were in a mess, but you could talk to Dick on the radio. And even though he was 100 miles away from here, it just felt, made you feel better about... And that was Dick. He came over to see me in the, here at the forum. And, and that was the kind of thing, if it hadn't been for this, it wouldn't have happened, you know. And that was Voices from this year's Maine Fisherman's Forum, which just happened a few weeks ago in Rockland at the Samoset Resort. 
um, celebrating its 40th anniversary. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU-FM Community Radio, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And I am joined in the studio today by Robin Alden from Penobscot East Resource Center and also a former commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources and a founder of the Maine Fishermen's Forum. And I'm also joined by Jim Wilson from the University of Maine, the School for Marine Sciences, also a founder of the Fishermen's Forum. And we've also been hearing some voices of people that we interviewed this year at the forum. Um, Many of you out there listening today may have attended the forum yourselves or are somehow connected to the forum. And so we just wanted to open the phone lines and encourage folks who have comments or questions or your own experiences that you'd like to share in honor of the 40th anniversary of the Maine Fisherman's Forum to please call in. The toll-free call-in number is one 866 625 9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. Now, Robin and Jim, uh, the last person who we just heard from was Brian Robbins, who just shared what I thought was this wonderful story about meeting folks at the forum for the first time that he, as a young fisherman, had been talking on the radio for a long time, including that compelling story of you know, when he's out in a storm and maybe having a really hard time of it and just getting on the VHF radio and talking to someone and having a calming voice. Um, and I just think that's really neat that the forum enables that to come out. Who, who, who Did you guys know the gentleman he was talking about? Dick I knew Jellison? both of them. Yeah, I know Brian very well and, and knew Dick for sure. Tell us a little bit about what hearing that story meant for you and who, who these guys are that we just heard from. Well, Dick uh, is originally a Swans Island man who ended up being a skipper on one of the big offshore O'Hara boats. These were the boats that used to go down into Canadian waters before we had the Canadian line, the Hague line, um, came back into the Gulf of Maine in in 1980. And uh, so he would have been fishing side by side with Stevie and Brian. Um, They would would have been lobstering and Dick would have been dragging for uh, ground fish. And that, so that would have been roughly in the 70s, 80s? That would have been in the, think? probably, my guess is that Dick wasn't in the Gulf of Maine until after the after the start of the Canadian line, um, and that would have been starting in 1980. Okay. Well, in 84 was when it became firm, but... And can one of you explain, uh, Jim, maybe you were talking earlier about the 200-mile limit, and what's the relationship between the 200-mile limit and the Hague line? (laughs) When Canada and the U.S. went to 200 miles, our claims overlapped in the Gulf of Maine and on George's Bank, and we were not able to settle it ourselves. We agreed to go to a special court of the world or a special hearing of the World Court in The Hague, and the World Court was made the final decision on where that line would go. Canada and the U.S. both respect that line. That's where it is today. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Many of the people that we've heard are from various different aspects of the fishing industry, and they come together annually at the forum. And um, in a few minutes, we'll hear some clips from folks who specifically talk about um, the different perspectives that come to the forum. But um, Robin, tell us a little bit about how that works to have so many different walks of life who sometimes outside of the forum may not really agree with each other on what's happening with the fisheries. Well, I think uh, Brian's story kind of sums it up because 
often those other people and those other points of view are abstractions. You hear them, you read them in the paper, you whatever. And um, or in Brian's case, you hear them on the VHF when you're out to sea. So um, at the forum, all of a sudden, that person is another human being. They may have their kids in tow. They may be sitting at the bar with you. And so you start to do that human thing of learning that uh, this is another person who, for some reason, has this outrageous idea that you disagree with. And you start the process of, of learning to understand each other. And speaking of humans, I understand <laughs> that we have um, a person who is on the line, um, Frank in Lemoyne. Are you there? Yes, yes I am human. Great. Sometimes I'm accused of that being. But I made my living, I guess, from about 84 till about two years ago in the seafood industry, mostly lobsters the last 15 years, but scallops, urchins, never fish. But my first move to Maine 43 years ago, my first person I met. The first day I was here was Raymond Hoskins, who we lost years ago, fish dragging. And when, when Bar Harbor, there used to be quite a few fish draggers in those days. And I think if the fishermen, the drag guys, had gone along with the lobster guys as far as being that many of them and small day boat fishing, would I think we'd still have fish in the Gulf of Maine. I could be wrong. Robin Alden knows a lot more about this than I do obviously, because I never really in the fish-fish business. But it just seems like the fish business is becoming, there's still fishing out there, just that it's mostly done by Walmart these days, so to speak, you know, big business. Um, that's one thing about the lobster business. There's so many different guys, not just fishing them, but buying them. I was a small player, and that was one of my ways to get lobsters from the lobster fishermen. Don't let it just be two buyers, guys, because there's only two buyers your lobsters will be a dollar a pound, okay? The more people buying anything keeps the playing field level, I think. I could be wrong. Um, and I think the fish is the same way. If it can be, it will is be controlled. I mean, the guys that fish in the Gulf of Maine, they own companies all over the world fishing, not just in the Gulf of Maine, I think. I mean, I could be wrong, Robin. You, Robin, you can come after this when I hang up, which is going to be at this point. So I'll listen to you offline here so I can hear the radio. Frank, thanks so much for your call and your perspective. And Robin, what do you think? I'll say something and then I I think the economists should weigh in too. So great. Um, But uh, I I share a lot of Frank's point of view. Um, I think the owner operator aspect of the main lobster fishery is critical to why we continue to have coastal, a healthy coastal uh, fleet. And, um, and in the federal arena, uh, you know, the change that we've been talking about with federal management has actually left us with vir- us, meaning the state of Maine, with virtually no access to f- fish in federal waters. Only two percent of Maine fishermen have any permit to fish in federal waters for anything um, other than lobster. Only sixteen percent of Maine lobstermen have federal permits. So we're basically stuck inside three miles right now because of the way that's gone. Um, We actually are involved in what's called permit banking, uh, but it's going to take policy change to make permit banking uh, be able to help small-scale meaning meaning lobster-size businesses. Great. I, you know, totally agree with Robin. I'm sitting here biting my tongue, Mm -hmm. though, about 
what I should say about how the science has kind of pushed us into this corner. Uh, a large part of what Penobscot East is about, a large part of the stuff that I've learned from fishermen, a lot at the forum, is about the importance of small-scale fishing, the importance of paying attention to things locally. And you know, I think what federal management has done is pushed us to the point where we've treated the whole ocean as if it was homogeneous. We fished it that way, and it's been a very bad mistake. I think it's really important to look at the importance of, of uh, small-scale fishing as an ecological issue as well as an economic issue or a social issue. Um, the uh, We've learned a lot about resources. This is what Jim's talking about, that they exist at a much more local scale. We have found out there are local populations of groundfish. We know that there are genetic differences in scallops along the main coast. So, so having many small operators observing and able to adapt as things change is part of how we're going to manage a changing ocean and keep our fisheries. It seems like Maine is often referred to as a really small state where where everyone knows each other, and uh, it seems like events like the Forum have played a critical role in helping those small-scale um, fishermen and women sort of connect to each other and connect to potential allies in, in different camps. Um, and that was in the interviews that we conducted at this year's forum was a, a theme that came out loud and clear was this opportunity to exchange and to share information amongst each other. So let's go ahead and listen to our final set of clips um, from this year's Maine Fishermen's Forum. Kristen Porter, fisherman from Cutler and president of the Maine Fishermen's Forum Board of Directors. It's a great place to come and exchange ideas in a in a neutral setting, there's no there's no stress about it. You can just come. It's not a it's not a public hearing. Um, a lot of ideas exchange at the sessions and in the hallways and in the bar and in rooms. And it's, it's just a great great weekend to get away and see other fishermen. Sheila Dassett from the Down East Lobstermen's Association. I come because I love to see everybody. It's like a family gathering. Part of that, too, is working on the board of directors. Everybody works together. We managed to pull this forum together, and, and we work with the lobstering, the dragger people, and we all managed to do it and get along. Alex Todd, commercial fisherman from Shebeg Island. The science end of it, it's interesting to see how... Um, reproduction and all that stuff actually works, which is something I never really even considered that much. I see what comes up on the deck, and I think I know what goes on, but I don't actually know that much about the reproduction of the different species, the scallops and the shrimp and things like that. And I learn a lot about the scientific end of it, and it helps you plan, you know, your fishery to make it sustainable in the future. Rick Wally, a research professor at the School for Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. i got to say it's probably the single best place to network with the fishing industry I can think of. Joe Parada is a shellfish harvester and aquaculturist and chair of the Seven Town Regional Shellfish Committee in the Frenchman Bay area. Well, mostly I, I come um, on clam day 
and uh, to talk about and see what's going on with work on the shellfish industry in general um, and clams in particular. You're dealing with closures and bacterial um, issues and trying to get things open and to, to work on in the future. Maine's a small state. Almost everyone who has some interest in fisheries in Maine and today for clams, basically the whole community of, this, of the Maine shellfish industry is represented here today. Carla Gunther from Penobscot East Resource Center. Well, the energy here is always pretty fun. It's great to um, see folks that you see throughout the year, but for all the same purpose of just getting information. A lot of times through the year when you're at other meetings, people come with an agenda. Um, I feel like the forum is one of those places where you might be able to see people drop their agendas and just be here to kind of socialize and interact. And we have a booth every year and um, our Eastern Maine Skippers program that we've been working with, the seven Eastern Maine high schools. This will be our second year where they have a booth and it's just a great time for the kids to also see fishermen from the different towns and all the different agencies and an interest in fishing all together in one place. So um, we learn a lot um, as Penobscot East. We learn a lot from fishermen and from the different agencies. It's our, it's just kind of a drinking from the fire hose. It's a way to get lots of information in a short amount of time. Great. Um, if you've just tuned in, we just heard a bunch of voices from this year's Maine Fishermen's Forum celebrating its 40th anniversary. Um, the event, as Carla just said, drinking from the fire hose. I love that expression. Sort of gives you a sense of the breadth and depth of information that gets exchanged there um, and just the general good camaraderie that develops as a result of 40 years of putting all these different interests in one room or in a series of rooms at the Samoset Resort. Um, I think that we have a caller on the line, Ron from Bar Harbor. Welcome to the show, Ron. Hi, Natalie and, and your guest. Uh, what a wonderful show and, and such a great um, opportunity to showcase the Fisherman's Forum. I think I was there in 1976. Great. I think that was the first one at the uh, Samuset. My question um, really to Robin is, uh, as she works with especially younger fishermen who perhaps have seen the lobstering um, do so well in the last few years, um, there's a sense of, of doing stewardship in the lobstering um, trade. What about um, introducing the whole question of stewardship to the other fisheries? Um, how, how has that been working out, and, and do you think people are, are paying attention to that uh, mission? And I'll uh, listen to my answer offline. Thanks. Thanks for the call, Ron. Well, that's a big uh, that's a big mission, and yeah. I've, I think I've been working kind of on that for forty years or so, and it's it's still a work in progress. I think um, there's a lot of talk about the success of those the stewardship in the um, lobster fishery, the apprenticeship entry, and as the state legislature is starting to look at licensing in other fisheries in the state of Maine, um, there is talk about how to figure out how to put those same kind of values into the state licensing process for other other fisheries. So, um, you know, participating in stewardship, sort of like like the clam, the way the clam diggers do in their town clam um, ordinances, that may be a part of how you get access to other licenses in the future. Um, that's all just a big conversation right now that's starting, but it's um, it's very important and it may be a key to how we figure out how to do fishing in the future. 
Yeah, and Jim, I know in your in your role um, as a professor at the University of Maine, Robin's working fairly directly on a day to day basis with with young fishermen, and and you're working directly with young scholars who are going to then probably move on and be in the world of management or science. H- how do you um, how do you impart these complicated sustainability themes to to your students? That's <laughs> Another That's big question. Job, yes. yeah. uh, you know, what Robin said about stewardship and the importance of that is extremely important to making a fishery work. The lobster fishery is, uh, as I said before, uh, an example that's hard to find elsewhere in the world uh, that works as well. Uh, and learning how to extend that stewardship concept, it's not just people feeling good. It's making the right arrangements, this business about scale that we've talked about, uh, local ecology and so on and so forth. Uh, It's not an easy job. You can't just snap your fingers and say, let's be stewards. Uh, You have to put together the biology and the people part uh, in a complicated, difficult process. One of the places that we've been working on this recently, uh, and when I say we, I mean the whole, the state, the fishermen, Penobscot East, a number of groups, um, has been in the scallop fishery. And Yeah, um, tell us a little bit about that process. It's so unique. Well, it's um, to cut all the way to the chase because mm. we don't have time to talk about it all. The, the state has done some uh, different management in different parts of the state, which is a reflection of the ecology in that in those areas. In other words, Cupscook Bay is different from the outer shore from Lubeck to Stonington which is different from the southern part of the state. And one of the things that happens once you start to involve, fishermen have been very involved in the um, articulation of the management. And one of the things that happens when you do that is that then people start asking questions, meaning fishermen start saying, well, how do we know whether the scallops are rebuilding in this closed area? Um, How do we know how fast they're growing? Um, Are there differences between the scallops? So those, what are essentially scientific questions, which what are scientific questions emerge out of participation in management rather than science saying we know what the reproductive area uh, rate is and we know what's happening and you will do this. So it's a much more um, uh, inclusive and sort of uh, evolutionary uh, process. And I think it's the way a group learns together. And, you know, to come back to the forum, the forum is the kind of context where some of that can happen. What the scallop management is, is trying to do that on a year-round basis. That seems like a really critical nuance that you've just identified where um, success lies in collaborative exploration of what's driving the issues rather than scientists and managers, sort of the top-down approach. Um, do you think that that's, that's been changing over time and, and how that works? There's been an incredible change in the perspective of the scientific community. You know, Robin's description of coming into the 200-mile extended jurisdiction era with the idea that science would give us the magic number uh, and solve the problems was very much the way this whole process started. You know, we had a lot of instances at the forum where fishermen would get up and say, I saw this, I saw that, mm-hmm. and scientists would say that's unimportant on or, average. Or they'd say, I would be extremely surprised if what you're telling me were true. That's Ooh. right. 
And there was a lot of tension, uh, well-deserved tension, because scientists came on with this idea that we know how to do it. They've learned over time, right? They understand that they're faced with a much more difficult problem than they thought when we started. We're not there all, all the way by any means, right? But that's kind of what the forum is there for, is to create that dialogue between fishermen, scientists, regulators, so that you can get over these really difficult issues. Talk it out in a safe place, like so many people have said, the forum is a place you can go and you can talk these things out, and it's not dangerous to talk there. Hmm. And, you know, we haven't solved the problem through the forum, but we've kept the conversation going. And, you know, this kind of change cannot happen without trust. And I think there's a lot of, um, when you're a fisherman, you get up in the morning, you go fishing, and you, have, you can avoid a lot of conflict, a lot of interpersonal conflict. Well... There's a lot of tendency to do that, and the forum is setting a platform where maybe you're going to trust to get curious, and the scientists maybe will get will trust to get curious and listen from the fishermen, and and the manager will maybe say, maybe I don't have the answer. Maybe we could do something a little different than I originally thought. Mm-hmm. What is your hope, uh, Jim, for the next? 40 years of the forum? What's sort of emerging that you see on the pike in terms of the trends that you've seen over the years in the fishing industry? Because really the forum sort of reflects what's happening in the fishing industry. What's your crystal ball say? You started out asking me what my hope is. Yes, those are two different <laughs> okay. questions. Yeah, let's start with hope. My, my hope is that the forum continues the way it's gone for the last 40 years. You know, it's been remarkably successful beyond anything I think either Robin or I thought about it you know, and people have carried it on. It's become a community affair, and it's done far more than we ever thought it would. And if it could keep doing that for another 40 years, I'd be extremely happy. That's great. Couldn't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to correct it, though. It's always been at yes. the Samoset. The Sam- it started in 1975 in the Samoset, and the Samoset venue has been critical to its success. <clears throat> that big open lobby, the fact that it's in the mid-coast, um, it's not in Portland where there are a lot of other things to do. It's kind of isolated, and everybody can just hole up and have a great weekend. That venue has been critical to the success of the of the uh, event right from day one that's great that's great and um what robin what are some of the critical changes that that you hope to see um in the way fishing is managed in the coming 40 years oh boy (laughs) (laughs) think of one or two top ones (laughs) well i i really want um i don't think we can do it right if we don't have fishermen as part of the management. I think fishermen are going to have to step up and do monitoring and contribute to decisions not about how, not looking at it as how do I restrict myself and my fellow fishermen, but how do we make sure to make more or how do we make sure to keep this good thing that we've got going? And if they can actually be rolled into the process so that that's the process Managers are there and enforcement is there to keep things fair and make sure that it's smart. Scientists are there to learn so that we're all making smarter decisions. And fishermen are there with contributing their information and their their compliance. Uh, We could fish forever, as I said. 
That's great. That's great. Um, for folks out there who would like to uh, learn more or if you've never attended the, for- the Maine Fisherman's Forum and you would like to, I'll just let you know a couple of websites. The Fisherman Forum's website is www.mainefishermansforum.org. Um, and uh, Robin, if people want to reach you at Penobscot East and learn more about the good work that you're doing, can you share a... It's uh, www penobscoteast.org. Great. And uh, Jim, if folks want to reach you, I'll just share that the University of Maine website specific to your shop, the School for Marine Sciences, is www.umaine.edu slash marine. And uh, particularly for um, the next generation out there, um, to, you would welcome, I imagine, folks contact, contacting yeah. you. Great. Uh, in one minute or less, any parting thoughts? I just have one little funny story. Great. Part of the planning for this was we knew we had to hold it in the winter, all right, when people were not fishing as much as usual, and we tried hard to pick a time to do it. We actually called up the weather service in Gray, Maine, and asked them, what is the lousiest weekend in February and March? <laughs> And they went. They thought that was a great question, and they went back and they investigated it, and they said if you can do it right at around the first weekend of March, that's the worst one we can find, and they proved to be pretty good that night. <laughs> That is great. That's great. Well, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about the Maine Fishermen's Forum, a 40th anniversary retrospective. Um, I'd like to thank our guests for their time and good work, Um, in particular in the studio, Robin Alden from the Penobscot East Resource Center. Thank you, Robin. And Jim Wilson from the University of Maine School for Marine Sciences. Um, Thanks also to our callers, Frank and Ron. Great to hear from you. And thanks to the 28 people we interviewed at this year's Fisherman's Forum. We couldn't get you all on the air, but we have your archives for a future broadcast. Um, And also thanks to my colleagues at Sea Grant, Catherine Schmidt, Chris Bartlett, and Dana Morse, who helped compile the interviews at this year's forum. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from Maine Sea Grant at the University of Maine, bringing marine sciences to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. On the second Friday of each month, you can still catch Talk of the Towns, the long-standing WERU public affairs program that inspired Coastal Conversations. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from the Hamden Farmer's Market, providing local, farm-fresh vegetables, beer and wine, artisanal cheeses, grass-fed meats, cut flowers, seedlings, baked goods, and more. 